Welcome to Conversations That Matter podcast. My name is John Harris. We're going to talk today about 10 questions that you can ask a pastoral candidate concerning social justice. If you're a Christian, if your church is looking for a pastor, which I happen to know a lot of churches right now are doing just that, I think there's a generational thing going on. Baby boomers um, are retiring, and, and so there's that. Uh, at the same time, there's been a lot of friction, political friction, theological friction, and uh, pastors have either left or congregations have given pastors the boot. That, that happens a lot less often, but uh, there's just a lot of churches open for pastors right now. And, um, and, and I've had a lot of emails from people inside some of these churches asking, what do, what do I say? What do I uh, do when there's a pastor we're looking at? And I, I just want to ensure that not only are they going to sign our statement of faith, but they're not going to sign our statement of faith, come into the church, and then start pushing social justice, and we'll have more friction. We, we want to avoid that. So I get that. I understand that. And so that's why uh, I'm doing this podcast. Uh, these are 10 questions, and there could be a lot more. These are just 10 I jotted down today. Um, and, uh, and, and these are really based on a lot of the things that I have gone over in my book, Christianity and Social Justice, Religions and Conflict. It is out, by the way. You can go to Amazon and get it. Um, by the time I post this podcast, you could probably go to ChristianityAndSocialJustice.com. That's ChristianityAndSocialJustice.com. And there you can uh, find the Amazon link, but you can also um, get an autographed copy. And um, I know those will be available, I think, on something like October 10th or 11th. I'll be shipping some of those out. So uh, a little bit of a delay on that if uh, you're watching this uh, late September. But uh, I would encourage you, if, if you want the autograph copy, um, it does probably support me a little more to do it that way. And, um, and I, I will be uh, shipping those out. But if you want the Amazon copy, this is what I do. I'll just tell you what I do usually when I like a book. I get the Kindle edition because I can search the Kindle edition. There's a search feature. If I want to find out what did the author say about, I don't know, Derrida, Foucault, Marx, you know, some figure or some issue, uh, Black Lives Matter, I can type it in on my Kindle app on the computer and it'll come right up. All the places an author mentioned Black Lives Matter, let's say, and I can go look and find the sentence or the, the paragraph that I was looking for. So I, I usually do try to get a Kindle version uh, and that's with me all the time. I, I can carry it on my phone if I have the Kindle app. So um, and I do have that. So um, get the Kindle version. It's like 10 bucks from Amazon. And then you can go get an autograph copy, a hard copy of the book. I like I like feeling the paper. When I'm actually reading, I like I like having that. So research, Kindle's great. Reading, I love to have that hard copy. And, and you can go get, you know, an autograph copy of uh, Christianity and Social Justice, Religions and Conflict. So uh, there you go. There's my little advertisement at the beginning of the podcast uh, for everyone out there. I'm going to have more on the book later this week. I've already been reached out to by a number of media people wanting to interview me about it. I appreciate it. If you have a podcast or you want to do an interview, you can also uh, reach out to me as well. In fact, I'm going to give my email address out there. This is this is kind of the email address I use for, um, I, I have a few email addresses like most people, but this is the one I use to kind of intake um, questions and things like that. Uh, I, I don't always, I'm not always able to answer everything someone sends me, but uh, if you put in the subject line something like um, uh, book review, let's say, book review, uh, send it to jonathanharris1989.com, jonathanharris1989.com. And uh, if you have a video and it's just a, a just you talking, maybe uh, keep it short, you know, 30 seconds to two minutes, uh, tops two minutes, I, I would say 30 seconds would be better. Uh, just saying how much you appreciate the book or if the book meant something to you or if you liked it, so, something, your endorsement of the book, I will play those on the Conversations That Matter podcast. So 
Um, I am looking to, for the next month or two at least, uh, be advertising this, be pushing this. I really do think this is the book that I, I would have liked to have read myself before I went to college. And, and I wrote it thinking that. These are the things I want someone to know about this. So uh, if you've read the book, if you are going to read the book, these questions, I think, will just make a lot of sense to you. You'll be able to articulate them. And uh, if a conversation gets started in, a let's say, a pastoral candidate search committee meeting, uh, then you can, you'll have the ammunition, you'll have the understanding you need to navigate those discussions. But without further ado, let's go through the questions. Here they are. Um, and this graphic, uh, this JPEG image will be available uh, if you go to um, any of my social media outlets, I'm going to be posting it uh, on those places. So uh, that'll be free for everyone. 10 questions to ask a pastoral candidate concerning social justice. All right. So you have a pastoral candidate you're looking at. You like a lot of the things you see, but you're just, you just you just want to make sure uh, that they're on the same page with your church on the issues of social justice. And so I've tried to hit a few of the, the key things, a few, a few of the areas that... Um, I think are important because uh, let's just face it. If you ask, Hey, are you for social justice? Are, do you agree with critical race theory? Or you're going to get the answer. They know you want to hear. They're going to say no. And, and then they probably, <laughs> um, often they, they, they push critical race theory under a different name, or they just, they have a lot of the assumptions that critical race theory has. And, but they just don't think that they agree with critical race theory because of some difference somewhere along the line. So being more specific, asking good questions, very important when you're in a process like this, because you don't want to be two years down the track and you have a pastor and people have gotten to know him. And then all of a sudden he starts pushing the church in this leftward direction. So number one, do you believe it is part of the mission of the local church to be more culturally diverse? Do you believe it is part of the mission of the local church to be more culturally diverse? Now, you could also ask, do you think our church needs to be more diverse? That's another way of asking it. You know, you've been around, you've seen our church, you think it needs to be more diverse, ethnically, culturally, uh, whatever that means. Uh, let them answer the question. A lot of this is trying to give more open-ended questions, um, trying to get a discussion going if possible. Uh, so if they say, yes, it does, well, what do you mean by that? Why do you think that? Are there, uh, are there barriers that you're seeing that, that are preventing people um, of different cultures from coming in the church? If so, Why? Uh, those are the kinds of discussions you're going to want to have, and it'll help you to get into uh, whether or not, and this is the key question here, whether or not they believe that it's a primary mission, that it's actually the mission of the church to be diverse. Because that's it's not. It's, um, it's, a, it's a result, uh, generally, of a church, a church that pursues the gospel and pursues truth and uh, preaches the Bible, oftentimes you're going to have a lot of different kinds of people that are attracted to that because God brings them. Uh, hopefully the people in your church are reaching out to those kinds of people. But it's it's people that you're after. It's souls that you're after. It's making disciples that you're after. It's not targeting certain demographics. It's not going fishing with a certain lure and saying, I, don't, I just really, we have too many bass in the boat. We really just need to get a bunch of panfish and catfish in here. And we need different lures to do that because we're looking for some ratio or we're looking, we're, we, we're after a style. We're after um, a certain kind of optic. Uh, you you want to stay away from that. Instead, what you want is just, we're going to go out there with a fishing lure that catches all the fish because that's what we're commanded to do to make fishers of men. And uh, if we get more bass, then that's fine. If we get more catfish, that's fine. Um, 
we can certainly ask questions like, uh, is there something we can be doing uh, better to to attract all the fish? But that should be the, the emphasis is uh, the gospel and making disciples that goes to every person. It's people that are valuable. It's not people of certain ethnicities that are more valuable or less valuable. And it shouldn't be some kind of a, you know, that the church must reflect uh, the exact uh, ethnicities represented in our local community. Or more often than not, I see pastors or social justice advocates who say, well, the church needs to be even more diverse than the local community because it needs to be a witness for, and somehow that's a witness to, to show your diversity means you're doing something right. Well, you want to get away from that assumption. That is a secular social justice assumption. That doesn't mean that you're doing something right necessarily. Uh, the Spirit of God is going to move where the Spirit of God is going to move. And you just want to be as open as possible. Um, and sometimes, let's face it, sometimes there's going to be different styles uh, that will uh, some people won't be as attracted to. Uh, uh, you know, the, uh, for instance, I'll give you an example: hymns. Right, hymns um, will attract a certain demographic uh, more than another. If you do uh, R and B music in your church or like hip hop or something, you're going to attract uh, another kind of demographic, perhaps. Now. That's not very, hip hop's not very um, participatory as far as congregational singing. So you probably don't want to do that. Uh, in fact, I, I remember when I was a teenager, this wasn't hip hop, but it was more the, the Christian rock thing. Uh, there were people who um, in, in the church I was going to really wanted to emphasize that. Let's have a lot of Christian rock. Let's get some young people on stage. I remember there, there was an event once where they got a bunch of garbage cans and put graffiti on them and this whole thing, got a smoke machines and and the whole idea was to try to get people into the church who are um, from the world, who are secular, who are young, uh, and this is going to get them interested. Well, what you're doing, though, is you're sacrificing the actual—you're sacrificing the rest of the congregation when you do that. You're not trying to—you're um, not trying to be the body for everyone. You're also doing this. You are um, sacrificing uh, par- participation for entertainment. So people can't really participate in that music as much. They can jump around and things, but they can't. As far as worshiping, as far as understanding the words, singing the words, um, looking at one another in a dark room where there's sm- smoke everywhere, it's very hard to do that. You're also trying to communicate to them that you're that you're identifying with them when you do that. You know, I identify with the culture you're part of, so that's why I got graffiti up here or something like that. And um, we have to be careful with those kinds of things. Um, I think, you know, the churches, is, uh, ch- churches are in cultures, but that doesn't mean that we're going to try to, to pick one subculture or one um, whatever's in vogue and try to make that. The, I mean, this is the era of the seeker-sensitive church. They try to make, put their, their best foot forward for um, showing the, the, the world that they're just as cool as them. And, and you're, you're, there's mission drift when you do that. Um, Jesus is the, the person that needs to be the right in front. That's the, that's the, the, if you want to draw a card, it's Jesus. If you want to be attracted to the church, it's because we got Jesus here. We have the Holy Spirit's here. We have scripture here. These are the things that you want emphasized, right? Uh, those, those things, those extra things, those unnatural things, and, the, and people can spot it when it's unnatural and it's fake and these kind of, these are the kind of things that, um, you may get a crowd, it's possible, but um, is it going to be, what you attract them with, you're going to have to keep them with. So I've gone on too long about that one, but um, my whole point is that if you're trying, if, if you have a pastoral candidate who says, yes, I really think the mission of the church is to be more culturally diverse, or that's part of it, then I would say that's a no-go. <laughs> I wouldn't, they already have the whole purpose wrong. The pur- purpose of the church, God's going to make the church as diverse as he wants it. Revelation 
uh, every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's God's job. He's going to do that. We, we need to, to go out there and do everything we can to attract men and women uh, from, from everywhere that's, that's around us in the, in the life that we live, um, whether it's, uh, no matter what ethnicity they are, we're going to be after them because they have a soul, not because they're a certain color. So hopefully that makes sense to people. If you start making it about a color or a social location or something like that, then you've lost the emphasis. That's a result, not um, not part of the mission. It's not. It's a. Uh, it, it's it's not the end in and of itself. So uh, number two, do we gain a better interpretation of scripture when we study with people from different ethnicities? This is uh, checking for standpoint theory. Does the person, are they postmodern? Do they believe that um, truth is subjective to some extent and that people from different social locations are going to be able to offer better or interpretations because of something like their level of oppression or something else? Uh, you you want to know that with a pastoral candidate going into that, uh, do you, when, when they're go- coming into your church. Do they believe that? Um, do they believe that um, someone who, let's say, is uh, from... I don't know, we'll just pick Jamaica or something, that they're going to have a better interpretation because, oh, I don't know, they come from a different culture. Maybe they have, there's more poverty uh, where they came from. And so you, you must listen to their insight uh, because of the fact that they are from a different social location. How about this? How about um, people are able to offer up insights in a Bible study, no matter who they are, and and you take them to heart and you listen to them and you compare and you evaluate and you Uh, use the principles of hermeneutics to determine whether or not it's a good evaluation, if it's a good interpretation. Uh, Compare it to what other scriptures say. Um, Try to figure out what the authorial intent of the book you're reading is. Um, Go through the the broad sweep of scripture. Figure out the general themes. I mean, these are the things you learn when you're in a hermeneutics class, or at least you used to. uh, Grammatical, historical hermeneutic. Try to approach it that way. And you're not going to be shutting someone down because they're of a certain ethnicity, you know, or a certain gender or something like that, if they have an insight they want to share with you, uh, listen to it. See, see, maybe they, they're onto something that you might have missed. That's possible. But what you don't want to do is favor certain social locations over others and say, well, they clearly they have a better grasp of this because I don't know, they went to prison. And in prison, you know, they they're we're reading a prison epistle from Paul, so therefore they went to prison. Therefore, we should just all listen to them because, well, they've had the same experience. Well, yeah, maybe they have some insights. It's possible they do. But their social location does not give them an advantage. Um, I like to use the, um, the, the analogy of brain surgery because I think it makes, it makes it more clear. So if you're a brain surgeon, right, do you want someone, do you, do you want to make sure that the textbooks that your doctor has read in medical school uh, were and, and and maybe even the people operate on you. Do you want to make sure that they're diverse, or do you make sure that want to make sure they know what they're doing? That they've actually put in the time and study. In Scripture, we find the Bereans are commended because they search the Scriptures. Right, we're supposed to be approved workmen who should not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It's it's the effort that you put into it. It's it's um and of course the Holy Spirit's involved in this process, but you it takes work. It takes work to study the Scripture to understand what it says. And that's the emphasis you see in Scripture. You don't see, well, you know, what do the Jews think? What do the Gentiles think? What do the different, I don't know, areas that Jews come from? What, what did they all think of what a certain passage said? And then we'll figure out the meeting. No, and, and you, we wouldn't do that in other areas of our life. Might they have an insight? Sure, you can listen. But it doesn't automatically give them an advantage because they're from a certain social location. And that's not, that's not the way that we should be approaching Scripture. It's a postmodern understanding. Uh, that says that certain 
um, cer- certain social groups uh, are better equipped. Is it's really Gnostic in a way? They're better equipped. They have they have knowledge that's not available to the rest of us. And no matter how much study, we, you know, we can't really arrive there because, well, you know, they're they're they just were born. It's it's innate in them to have this advantage. So make sure that your the pastoral candidate coming in doesn't believe that. And that's a good question to ask. Do we gain a better interpretation of Scripture when we study with people from different ethnicities? Here's another one. Number three. Is it necessary to hear the stories of abuse survivors in order to know how to handle abuse in the church? Is it necessary to hear the story of abuse survivors in order to know how to handle abuse in the church? Same kind of question, okay? And you might not think it is, but let me explain. If you um, are trying to figure out how to handle uh, abuse situations or prevent against abuse, then you're going to want to talk to who? (laughs) <laughs> well, we have the scripture, right? That's the first thing. We have the scripture, and that gives us, um, for the church, that's going to give us the principles that we need to understand uh, the nature of abuse, why people abuse other people, um, what to do about it, how to, how to handle sin in the church. Uh, but you're really going to want people who um, who understand how to apply the scripture and those principles to life. That's what you're going to be looking for. You want to consult the elders about these kinds of things. There is a tendency today to want to consult abuse victims and not not to just get their story because of something specifically that happened in your church, perhaps, and you need to know the details of it to tell the police what's going on. No, I'm talking about uh, like caring well type conference stuff where um, and believe women, me too kind of stuff where. Uh, we just we automatically must, no matter what we know. We, I mean, you could be uh, a police officer who's investigated these things for years, but you don't hold a candle in this way of thinking to someone who has experienced abuse, or they say they have. And so you'll you'll find conferences where the the pastors are in the audience. They're sitting down, they're listening, and they're getting all the wisdom from people who have experienced abuse. Now, there's nothing wrong with listening to someone's story. There's nothing wrong with gaining even some insights from. Oh, okay. Uh, that's interesting. You know, you were um, abused by the sound guy, and you know, uh, and there there wasn't enough oversight because you know they, they were I don't know in a booth or something, and they were it was private, and um, no one was going in there and checking up to see what was going on. Okay, well, we need to make sure that there's I don't know a, a window screen there or something that so people can see what's going on in there. Um, and obviously, you know, after you do the church discipline and everything else you need to do on the guy who did the abuse. So there are things like that where if you're in a specific situation, you're listening to a story, you can pick up different things. That's not what's really being communicated in Caring Well, though. Caring Well and that whole movement, that Church 2 movement, what they're trying to say when it when it gets down to it is that people who have experienced abuse, women specifically, are... Um, authoritative on not just the specifics of their story, but in general, they're authoritative on the very subject of abuse. And they are better equipped to help churches navigate and deal with and prevent abuse than a pastor who, or a police officer or someone who's actually worked in that field um, and, and has a Bible, by the way, and knows how to use it. <laughs> That's that's their. I mean, they they will platform people that really the only claim to fame they have is well they've been abused, and that's that's who's the one teaching the pastors how to deal with this, and that's that's very and they've actually had some people that are very unstable, like just emotionally unstable, um, and, and it's come out later on. You know, they've been they they've been platformed by the ERLC to do these conferences, and then we find out. 
okay, well, they've got a big problem They're and they're completely irrational and going crazy on social media and stuff. And this is the person that's training the pastors, training the denomination to, to deal with abuse. So that, that, that's the situation I'm talking about. I think this question, is it necessary? The key word is necessary to hear the stories of abuse survivors gets to the bottom of that. Um, it's not necessary to know how to handle abuse in your church. You have the word of God. You don't have to hear the stories of abuse advisors, uh, survivors. It may help, but it's not necessary to hear these stories to know how to, to handle abuse in the church. So uh, standpoint theory, we're checking for standpoint theory. If you just ask, hey, do you believe in standpoint epistemology? Do you believe in postmodernism? Do you believe truth is subjective? You're going to probably get the right answers. You got to ask questions like this to really find out what someone believes. All right, number four, do you believe the church is characterized by abuse? So this gets at the, the whole systemic sin stuff. And, and really, what do you think of the church? Is the church the, the bride of Christ? Is, um, and I'm talking about the, the church universal, the church as a whole, the church, or maybe you could say in America or in the Western world, if you want to say that, if you want to be a little more specific. But do you think the church is characterized by this? Is this what the church is known for? Is this something that's just happening all over the place? If it is, that's a problem. That's a real problem because that means you've got a bunch of Christians running around, pastors running around saying that they're, uh, they're Christians, that they're part of the church, and um, and really they're they're involved in this pattern of sin, which would mean if it's, it's such a pattern of sin that they're not Christians. So it's very important how you view the church, what you think of the church, uh, and if you believe the church is characterized by abuse, if that's in its nature, it's in its in its DNA, then you you're probably at the church to change it. To, to bring it into the 21st century, to make it more equitable and diverse and inclusive and to, and these kinds of things. It'll just, it'll give you a little hint to, to, to figure out where that person is. Now, if they say, look, the church, there, there have been tra tragic abuse cases, of course, and that's, you know, we're sinners and we, we what, what do you expect? I mean, there's people in the church who are, aren't, are, who are tares. Uh, it's going to happen. Um, that's very different than saying the church is characterized by this fundamentally what the church is and is an abusive institution. If you get that sense from someone that they think that they're there as the uh, Superman or a superhero of some kind to save the day, to get the church uh, into a situation where it's less, um, less abusive, but also more inclusive and all the rest of you know, what their agenda might be, then you want to run away from that person. That person isn't there because they respect your church and maybe they want to reform a few things here or there. They're, they're there to revolutionize your church if that's what they really think the church is. Because why would you want to be part of an institution that is characterized by that? Who, who wants to be part of that? I've said this before. When you, when you, when you say that the church is, uh, you know, we, we've been racist our whole, you know, for centuries, the church is just this horrible, racist, abusive institution, uh, oppressive towards women, oppressive towards LGBTQ people, horrible place. But look, now you should join the church because, you know, we, we're fixing it now. That's like saying, you know what, <laughs> you know what the Ku Klux Klan is like, right? But you know what, now we've reformed. We've reformed our ways. So why don't you join us? It, it It's the same kind of thing. It, it sounds ridiculous when I say the Ku Klux Klan, but if you treat the church like it's like that, and, and you're there to make it different, to reform it and stuff, then what's going to actually change? What kinds of things are going to be different? as a result of this pastor coming. So you're, you're, and that's one of the questions you want to find out. What do, what do you want to change about this place? And I'll give you an insight into what they think of the church as a whole, or even you could even make it the local church. If, if they think the church is characterized by abuse, um, it'll just give you some, a window into to what they think and maybe what direction they're going to go in. 
Number five, is it wrong for the church service to operate using cultural norms developed in Europe, such as hymns, Bible translation, architecture, etc.? This is a question to figure out, again, where do they want to change your church, and if so, how? Uh, if they have such a problem with hymns, why do they have a problem with hymns? If they have such a problem with, I don't know, uh, the architecture, and they want to change the stained glass windows or something, if they have such a problem with um, the way the people dress, uh, you want to know why that is. Uh, some, for social justice activists, they'll everything's whiteness that they want to change. It's, it's part of whiteness, or, which is basically is Western civilization, European uh, norms. Um, now listen, um, the Bible gives us directives, the Bible gives us command, the Bible gives us principles. But those principles are going to work themselves out a little differently depending on the culture you're in. That's just true. And so if you're in a context, um, like a, a more of an English context, then the English manners and the way that uh, biblical truth and, and the, the social customs of England have kind of grown up together, they're going to influence, uh, the, the Bible is going to influence those customs, and it has, but those customs themselves are going to be um, part of the thing you take into account when you apply scripture. Uh, saying even things like good morning, good day, shaking someone's hand. I mean, there's so many things that we take for granted that are the result of the culture that we live in. And um, people who want to rip down whiteness, quote unquote, are, want to come in and they want to change a lot of those things. Uh, maybe not shaking hands, but maybe, could be. I mean, with COVID now, it definitely could be. But um, I'm thinking of a specific situation even right now. I knew of uh, someone who told me that they had a family come to their church and then immediately wanted the whole church to change for them. And they don't want hymns sung anymore. Or not as much, at least. You got you to gotta take into account uh, our preferences. We want, and it was, I guess, African-American type, I don't know if it was spirituals or it was modern gospel music, but you, you must do this. And basically, we like, we're going to make this an issue in the church. And... Um, and, and the whole issue, and what they did was they used racism as the wedge to do it. It's racist if you, you sing all these English hymns uh, and, you know, our family wants this other style. Now, and, and as I understand it from the situation, I wasn't there for this, but the pastor told me that uh, it wasn't coming, it, it wasn't a gracious like, hey, can we incorporate some of our styles along with what you're doing? It was a demonization of the hymns that were being sung. So you want to make sure if you have a pastor coming in, um, you you want to know what they're going to want to change, but you're going to understand their thinking. If they think that whiteness is such a bad thing, well, where do they locate it in your church? Do they see it in your church? Uh, and a question like this, um, is it wrong for the church to, to service to operate using cultural norms developed in Europe, such as hymns, Bible, in the Bible translation, maybe you use the ESV, the architecture, the that's a good place for you to start figuring out whether or not they want to change those things. And if they really want to change those things, there may be legitimate reasons to change some of those things. I'm not saying there isn't, but there is also an illegitimate reason. And if the illegitimate reason is just because they're European, just because and that's evil somehow, then you know you got a social justice activist on your hands. Number six, is it sinful to be sexually attracted to members of the same sex? Pretty, pretty obvious question. Um, obviously, the desires of our heart, God looks at those things as well. Hebrews talks about um, rooting out the very um, desires that we have, the epithemia. Uh, these are things that, uh, attractions that are evil because they're disordered. These aren't, um, these aren't even the attractions that I, I, I'll say this. I don't think Jesus Christ would have had these kinds of attractions because it would have been sinful for him. Did he, was he tempted at all points as we are? Yes. Every category for temptation, he had those temptations. 
Um, but he, uh, there are certain sins that are predicated on other sins. They, 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 Romans 1 really shows us this kind of, uh, the, this, these stepping stones that you go down to, to reach um, levels of depravity. And um, what's happening right now is that many Christians are trying to accommodate the LGBTQ plus movement by saying that, well, we know the Bible says that you can't do these things, but you, you can't have the desires. It's fine to have the desires, right? And that needs to be rejected. Uh, the desires to do evil things um, we are, are, I mean, they're wrong. <laughs> it's just as uh, lust is, is evil. Um, when, when you lust for someone who isn't your wife, that's evil. But to say that you're hardwired with a, a general desire, though, for something that God uh, says is sinful, and, and I don't want to say what I'm thinking of saying, because there's probably kids in the car, perhaps, as you're, as you're listening to this. But just, just think about the act that that entails. When someone says that they desire, they have same-sex attracted desires, what kind of act are they talking about? What do they want to do with someone of their same sex? Just think about that. I mean, that, that's what we're talking about. Uh, I, I don't want to paint a picture here, but it's an evil act. And when you say you have desires for these kinds of things, um, you, you are in, you, you, you want to pray that those would be taken away from you. You want to fight against those. You want to mortify those. You want to never give up on that, uh, on fighting those things. And maybe you will fight it for the rest of your life, but there's never a time to give up and say, oh, that's just my orientation. No. So um, that's a question I think you can get into a lot of uh, depth with, but it's going to really, I remember uh, Marcus Hayes at uh, First Baptist Church of Naples said that, said that from the stage when they, he, was that he was asked the question about is homosexuality a sin? He said, well, you know, yes, but I don't think it's a sin to be uh, same-sex attracted. So you've developed a category that is not in scripture. You don't, you won't find it in scripture uh, other than uh, the lust of the flesh and desires that are, you know, not in keeping with God's commands. I mean, you're not going to find a permissible, well, uh, same-sex attractiveness is fine. You won't find it. It's not there. So we've developed this extra category, not from the Bible, to try to accommodate the world. And if your pastor, pastoral candidate's doing that, you don't want them as your pastor. All right, number seven, should Christians repent for complicity in systemic sin? If they say yes, ask them to define systemic sin. So uh, this would be like, you live in America and pay taxes and don't do enough to fight against racism, whatever that means right? Complicity in systemic sin. Uh, you have white privilege, so you're just complicit in an evil system. Um, you want to know right off the top, what do they believe about that? Jesus said sin comes from inside, right? So if you have sinful desires, you hate other people because of external features, that's sinful. But if it's just um, you happen to live in, in a certain area, uh, and which really is all that's required. I remember Ron Sider said this years ago, that basically to benefit from global trade patterns is sinful. <laughs> like, that's sinful. No, it's not. That's, we call sin what the Bible calls sin, okay? And if you're going to make another category for a certain type of sin so that you can accommodate what the world is saying is sinful, you don't want a pastor like that. You want a pastor who only believes what the Bible says about sin. So, and if they say yes, ask them to define what systemic sin is. What's systemic sin? Tell me what that is. Is it, is it an evil heart? Um, that uh, creates a law, or is it just, I happen to be living in a country that uh, has a certain law that's unjust, and I just didn't do enough somehow. I should have been an activist, and I wasn't an activist, therefore I'm in systemic sin. That's not biblical. Number eight, is racial reconciliation part of the gospel? 
ask them to define racial reconciliation if they say yes. Uh, so this is a question to try to, this is, you're checking for critical race theory at this point. Um, if racial reconciliation is part of the gospel, what do you mean by that? If they say, well, I just think that no matter what ethnicity someone is, they should be able to get along. Uh, if they're in Christ, they should practice the one another's towards one another. Um, that's all I mean by racial reconciliation. Okay. All right. That's fine. Um, might not want to use that word just because of the way it's being used by a lot of people and the way that it comes across to a lot of people, but okay, that's fine. If you want to say that. Now, if what they mean by it, though, is uh, racial reconciliation means that you got to deplatform certain people and platform others. You need to uh, get rid of things that are, you know, like white Jesus, like Jarvis Williams says, got to get rid of that white Jesus, got to get rid of uh, that, uh, uh, those, those cultural norms uh, that, benef- that, that Europeans uh, produce. You got to get rid of... Um, I don't know. What does he say? You gotta, you gotta do some kind of a reparations thing, a platform certain people. Then, um, and that's part of racial reconciliation. Well, you're in critical race theory land at that point. You've just shown that what you've just determined, at least for this pastoral candidate, if they say that, that it's not really racial reconciliation thereafter. If, if in the first sense of using the word, the first uh, good illustration I gave, what they're after is uh, some kind of a revenge. Some kind of um, some kind of a, a, a socialistic kind of the church is going to be redistributing privilege and money and these kinds of things. That's what they're after. They're after some some kind of a, a scheme that's not biblical, and and you're going to test. You need a test for that. So, good question to ask: Is racial reconciliation part of the gospel? If they say yes, what is racial reconciliation? Number nine: Is it the church's job to fight economic or social disparities between minority and majority groups? Is it the job of the church? So the church be involved in, well, look, there's people impoverished from this social group more at a higher rate than this social group. Does that mean we need to put more effort into this social group by, I don't know, doing some kind of charitable work? Or does it mean that our offering needs to be redistributed somehow so that um, people who are a, a, look a certain way, a certain ethnicity, they get, I don't know, some kind of a, a, a benefit? I mean, these kinds of things are happening at certain churches. And the reality is, it's not biblical. Uh, we help those in need, right? So that's the question. Are, is someone in need? Not, are they in need? And by the way, what color are they? So that's, that's what you're checking for. Uh, number 10, what are your thoughts on the Bible's teaching on gender roles and slavery in the ancient world? Now, I want to expand on this a bit because this, I think this is actually one of the best questions, to be honest with you. And this will really, I think, get to the heart of a lot of things. This will show you what they think of the Bible, what they think of Christian ethics, what they think of the God whose character flows out um, through the commands he's given. His character is exemplified in those things. What does the Bible say about gender roles? What does the Bible say about marriage, about who, who, the office of the pastor? Um, do they believe that there is a creation norm for men to take on the role of leadership and women to be helpmates? Uh, do they believe that this is something rooted in creation? Um, do they believe that, that, that marriages, oh, I'm talking about marriages right now. Do they believe marriages uh, and those relationships between husband and wife, is that rooted in creation? Or is that just something arbitrarily that God has commanded without any kind of design behind it? Because there is a design behind it. So you want to find that out. What do they think about gender norms? And then what do they think about, um, and, and this is, will really test things. What do they think about slavery in the ancient world? And this could be Hebrew slavery or uh, Greco-Roman slavery. You look at 
um, the laws that were put down in ancient Israel to regulate slavery, um, even as they were being saved, uh, the Israelites, from the Egyptians, they were that, that brutal slavery that they were in, God's giving them the commands for the Passover and saying, you can include your slaves in this. People don't focus on those things, but there is there are barriers. There are barriers for abuse. There are there are there is a biblical way in the ancient world for slavery to work, and you see that in in uh, the nation of Israel. I didn't make the rules; God did. These are these are His laws. Uh, if if someone a pastoral candidate is coming in and thinks that God's laws for that time were wrong or unjust somehow, you've got a social justice activist on your hands. Now, you could also talk about Greco-Roman slavery. You could talk about the kind of slavery that existed in Paul's time and Jesus's time, and it had many abuses attached to it. It was not biblical, did not meet the biblical standards, yet there were commands given for masters in how they were to treat their slaves. So masters were to self-regulate themselves, to obey God's commands in this labor uh, relationship. So do, do they think that that was wrong or unjust? Uh, or didn't go far enough or something. What do they think about God's commands? And, and the question is not, uh, you know, should we have uh, that kind of slavery today in the 21st century? It's the question is for the times in which the Bible was written, what do, what do we think about these? Um, what do we think about the commands that God laid down for the situations that existed at those times? And if, they, if there's any hesitation whatsoever on the commands of God, then look, I'm just telling you straight up, I'm not comfortable with that. I would not com- be comfortable submitting myself to someone who themselves, uh, who, who they themselves are not comfortable with the commands of God. And so you want someone who's going to preach uh, the commands of God, uh, preach them without apologizing for them. And um, it's fine if they want to explain the context of those times, that what existed in the ancient world is, is fine. But you can't get away from the morality that God prescribed. And so... Uh, these are the 10 questions that I thought of that I thought these are good questions to ask somewhere along the line if you are vetting someone who could potentially be a pastor. And this will be available, like I said, I'll put a link in the info section uh, for the, the Patreon link for those who want to just get this graphic. Maybe you want to remember this stuff uh, for the situation like that. Uh, again, uh, ChristianityAndSocialJustice.com. Uh, if it's not up yet, it will be up very shortly. Uh, you can also go to Amazon.com if you can't find the... Um, order form for the autograph copies and you can just order there a hard copy or you can get the kindle version uh christianity and social justice religions in conflict is the name of the book please re- leave a review please do that it, it does help apparently i i was negligent on my last book i didn't really ask people that much but uh please leave a review let people know about it hey buy a few copies buy one for your pastor buy one for i don't know someone you know who would benefit from it i appreciate all your support god bless and until next time bye now Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. 
Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.